you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Come on! Uh, Get in there, Maverick! It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad, bad plan. All right, let's dive right in and see if we can have some fun with everything. Hi, back to talk about some fun bad guys from church history. And I've come to you this week to tell you that if you aren't new, then you aren't born again. And that can mean only one group. Ha 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 ha, I wish that were the case. That could mean a dozen groups. But in this case today, it means we are going to go back to Scripture, kind of like we did with uh, Cain and the... uh, Oh, it just went right out of my head, so I'm not even going to worry about it. Kind of like we've done a few times before, and we're going to talk about the Judaizers. Now, what's a Judaizer? Well, you should know this if you know anything about your New Testament. They have literally books that we're going to go over. Excuse me. Now, the Judaizers were a group that kind of had their beginnings with some scribes and Pharisees who had become believers, but they were synthesizing Jesus with their law-keeping. Now, I say that's their beginning because I really believe when you get to Acts 15, especially Acts 15.5, where they're described, uh, let's pull that up, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. This is the uh, Jerusalem Council. I think a lot of those guys are believers. However, after Paul and Barnabas leave and begin traveling on, by the time they get to Corinth, after going back through the Galatian churches, Paul has to write a letter because the Judaizing heresy has returned to Galatia. So while I don't think it's fair to say all of those believing Pharisees were false converts, I think it is fair to say that some of them were and that they gave birth to a group that did not follow in line with Orthodox Christianity. Now, to give somebody the benefit of the doubt here is key. These guys actually had a good goal. I mean, they had a worthwhile goal. They wanted to put together what they were, what they thought was an Orthodox understanding of the Old Testament with a good understanding of the work that Christ had done. And that is good, and they did an excellent job Uh, unless you realize that they misunderstood Scripture in the Old Testament, misunderstood the role of their own traditions in human history, and completely failed to forsake their former life apart from Christ. Other than that, awesome job, guys. Very well done. You may be asking, why are we discussing this? I mean, these guys have been done and gone for, you know, a couple thousand years now. We've got books of the Bible devoted to this. Because it's still a problem. There are ditches on both sides of orthodoxy. Always have been, always will be. And in this case, we are actually seeing both ditches um, grow weeds in the modern world. What I mean by that is the unhitched crowd that wants to relegate the Old Testament to antiquated status, kind of ball it up and throw it out the window because we don't need it. We just need to defend the New Testament. We just need to worry about New Testament teaching. We just need to handle the things that Jesus gave us. He gave us the Old Testament too. But that notwithstanding, that's one ditch. The other ditch is the the 
far-wing Hebrew Roots movement. And the reason why I say far-wing is because there are aspects of Hebrew Roots that I appreciate and understand, and they may have to get their own show at some point if we can ever really make sense of exactly where they all are. But the far end of them are exactly the same thing. They are the Judaizers of the New Testament come to life in 21st century uh, everywhere. So this is not something that has gone away and fallen by the wayside of history. This is something that is there and active in our modern world. And we've got to make sure that we deal with it without falling in the ditch on the other side that abrogates the entire Old Testament, throws it away, relegates the law of God to that thing for those people at that time, but rather understands it and applies it rightly. Hopefully we'll get a little bit of a, of a look at that as we uh, move forward this morning. So, biblical justification. Why were the Judaizers heretics? Well, for starters, let's just check out Acts 15. There is the problem. Men came down from Judea, began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh, excuse me. That would be a problem because that is an addition to the gospel. This is part of your theological triage here. Uh, for primary, first level issues are things that we divide and fight over. Chief among them is what is the gospel and how does it work? This is your uh, solas of the Reformation, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ as revealed in Scripture for the glory of God alone. So, sola gratia, sola fide, sola scriptura, so, uh, solas, solas Christus, sola scriptura, and sola deo gloria. There's your Latin that I butchered tremendously, so just have to deal with that. That's a problem. What these guys are doing are saying, no, 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 no. It's not by grace through faith in Christ. It's by grace through faith in Christ if you are of the people of Israel. No, 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 no. You've added a hurdle to the gospel. You have added a first step. See, that's a problem. Hence the reason why Paul and Barnabas have arguments with them. They argue and fight with them. And then they're finally sent on their way because they're going to go to Jerusalem and deal with this. So why do we condemn this? Well, because this was consistent at the Jerusalem Council. Verse 6, the apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, now this is good, Peter is kind of the leader of the apostles. He's the one who spoke at Pentecost. He was the one who was arrested. He was the one who did all this. Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. This is uh, Cornelius, Cornelius and his household. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Peter was clear on this. Paul and Barnabas, verse 12, uh, explain the work that's been done amongst the Gentiles through them, the works that God has done, the signs and wonders and the salvations that he has brought. And therefore, there's rejoicing. And then you get James. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his own name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. 
After these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, so based on that Old Testament reference, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them to abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, for, for Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. This seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them, blah, 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 and they sent out the message. So this is what they do. Now, why those things? Because they, they kind of summarize uh, faithful, applicable living in light of the Mosaic law, in light of freedom in Christ. They didn't split the baby. They basically said, this is not a means of salvation. This is a means of sanctification and living. There's a difference between those two things. Because you can't argue that strangled and from blood has anything to do with your Ten Commandments as your baseline. You could argue that for idols and fornication, but the other two you can't, which means they're taking the law of Moses and applying it to Christian living. Those who are saved now have an obligation to walk in newness and sanctification. Now, follow this. This is not just an Acts 15 thing. I said we have books written, things like the book of Galatians that condemn this because if I have my history right, and, and I may not, there are some people who disagree with me. And that's okay, we can still be friends. But I think Paul and Barnabas leave, they go on their second journey, they travel through the Galatian churches, strengthening them, and they end up settling in Corinth for a while. It is from Corinth in the early 50s that I think the book of Galatians is written, and it's written back to the Galatian churches because these people have come back. They have come back in following the works of the work of the council, following the teaching of Paul and Barnabas, and they have tried to corrupt these churches a, a second time, and this would be a problem. So why is Paul writing Galatians? Because he's refuting this, hopefully once and for all, in writing, so they'll have it. And what does he do? Chapter 1. There's only one gospel, and it is only delivered and has been preserved through the apostles called by God. This is why he defends his apostleship, because it was God, it was Christ who knocked him off that horse. No, I don't know if he was riding a horse in um, Acts 9 when he was kicked over, but my brain just froze. It is Acts 9. I'm not looking it up right now. I hope it's Acts 9. If not, forgive me. Send me angry emails. That'll be awesome. I'll deserve them. But it's Christ who called him, prepared him, gave him the gospel. It's not men who did that. It was Christ, just like Peter, just like John, just like John's brother James, just like Nathaniel, Philip, all of them. Paul was called in the same way. He goes on to chapter 2. He points back to the Jerusalem Council as having settled this problem and showing how Paul has been consistent because when this problem came up between he and Peter, he condemned Peter and called him out for it in public because he stood condemned and Peter was wrong and admitted it. Then he moves to his exposition in chapter 3, showing what? Righteousness comes through faith. Christ has borne our curse for us, the curse that the law presents us with, the curse that shows that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and that because of that, the law actually points us to Christ. The law is not a means of salvation. It's a means of condemnation to drive us to the Savior, and that faith makes one part of Abraham. 
that the faith in Christ makes you one of Abraham's descendants because Abraham was justified by faith. We'll come back to that later. Chapter 4, not only are you a part of the people of Abraham, but because of that you are heirs with Christ by faith. In that freedom in Christ, freedom from the works of the law, freedom from the condemnation, all come based on faith. Then he moves into the application, chapter 5. Because of this faith and because of this freedom, you are granted the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives you this freedom. The law doesn't bring freedom. The works of the law produce all sorts of coveting and problems. You can cross-reference that with Romans chapter 7. Whereas, what does the Spirit produce? That's your fruit of the Spirit. That's why we call it the fruit of the Spirit, because it's what the Spirit produces. So because of that... Sorry, my computer is doing something weird. I've got to fix that real fast. I apologize. Um, Because of that, we want to be living by the Spirit, not by the law. And then he concludes in chapter 6, which is what? Walking with one another, bearing burdens, rejecting false teachers, living Christianly. And if you are like, yeah, but that's Galatians. That was too specific for me. One, that's a weird objection. Find another one. Two, go read Hebrews. What is Hebrews trying to get across from the very beginning? That Jesus is the final revelation of God. Not Moses, not the law, Jesus. Because of that, Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. Being better than Moses is being better than the law. Then goes on to exposit what? The law pointing to Christ. How he's the priest offering the sacrifice, bringing people into their tabernacle. Not the one made by hands, but the one heavenly built above. Giving you rest and peace in God because of his work and calling you to a communion that is outside side of the physical law keeping because that could never establish a good and a right communion. See, this is not new. So when someone comes to you and tells you, hey, you need to keep that law to be Christian, that's wrong. That's a problem. Now, if they come to you and say, you should be keeping that law because you're Christian. That is not the same thing. And that's a, that's a distinction I want to make sure that we draw. And by keeping the law, I don't mean the ceremonial or ritual law. I'm talking about that which is pleasing in the sight of God, that which is honoring neighbor. And yes, Lou would probably argue with me on this when we do our other podcasts that there's more value in the uh, dietary restriction and the ceremonial aspects. And I would disagree on how we apply those directly. We can be friends, though, because Lou doesn't make it a gospel issue. He makes it a sanctification issue, which is a different discussion. I have to be convinced by the Spirit on sanctification. I'm not supposed to be convinced of the Spirit. Well, I don't want to phrase this. I don't need to be convinced of the Spirit on what the gospel is. Scripture clearly reveals that and and settles it in Christ. I can have issues, uh, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians, um, or 2 Corinthians. Read both Corinthians. It'll do you well. Talking about meat and sacrificed idols and dealing with the weaker brother because some people aren't as far along on the sanctified trail as others. We can walk and work together. It's okay. We do not make it a gospel issue. So, when I tell you that there is value in understanding the sacrificial system, I tell you there's value in understanding it because it points to Christ. When I tell you you should be using the law, specifically the summary of the law, which is love love the Lord your God with all your heart, most soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, how do I do that? Ten commandments, which are a summary of the entirety of the law, give me a basis for that. This is also why I'm not big on the ceremonial and civil laws of Israel, because I don't live in Israel, and 
I don't need to love my neighbor by putting a uh, little wall railing around the roof of my house because my roof isn't flat and people don't go on it. If you go on my roof, you're somewhere you're not supposed to be. It's not my job to protect you from your own stupidity. So I love my neighbor with my house by doing what? Well, I make sure the walkway's clear. I make sure the doors work. I make sure the roof doesn't leak. I do other things that care for it, that take care of you when you are in it and around it. I make sure that part of it isn't going to blow off in the next thunderstorm and damage my neighbor's house. So I love my neighbor by honoring my God with the building and dwelling that he has given me and stewarding it rightly. I don't have oxen that are going to get out and gore people, but I do have a car. So I need to make sure it's in decent repair. I need to make sure to the best of my ability that I honor God by rightly stewarding that possession that he has given me and love my neighbor by making sure my tires work and that I have gas in it and I'm not driving like a lunatic no matter what's going on around you. This is how we apply the principle rather than the letter of the law in our Christian lives, working ourselves forward. So with that little caveat given, remember, we're not following to be saved. We're following because we are saved. So that's our distinction between the Judaizers and people who are rightly trying to follow and apply the Old Testament. Let's actually figure out how we correct this in, in real time. And our starting point is a right following of Scripture. You're going to get sick and tired of hearing me say that, but it's, it's true. Our basis for all of these things should be the Word. So, how was salvation from the beginning? Uh, Galatians 3. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. See, his children were never meant to be children because of the law. They were meant to be children because they were promised by God. From the very beginning, salvation was by faith. You can see this again in Romans 4. What shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due? But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And Romans 4 continues on all the way through verse 12, explaining that the children of Abraham are not those of the flesh. They are those who are of the spirit. Spirit. And it's not just Paul. We've already mentioned Peter and James going along with what Paul was saying, but how about John? Great hallmark in his first epistle. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What's John telling you? How is your salvation found? How is your righteousness attained? It is attained by confession, repentance, and forgiveness of God, by mercy and grace. So by faith, by grace, through faith. This is consistent in the apostolic testimony. And just before you get on me and go, yeah, 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 yeah. But that's a New Testament thing. Oh, yeah? Habakkuk, which is always just fun to say. Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. The righteous will live by his, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, faith. Why? Because if I'm proud, I'm trusting in myself. I'm looking to my greatness and my glory. I'm not walking humbly. I'm not walking with God because I'm walking with myself. I am my standard. I am my hope. I am my salvation. No. My faith is that God is those things. Micah 6 gives you that great hallmark from the uh, prophetic word. With what shall I come to the Lord? 
and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? That's a lot of oil. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Summarize that. Do justice and love kindness. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And to walk humbly, repentantly, trusting in Him, not in you. The prophets are clear on this. New Testament writers didn't get this out of a hat. They came by this honestly because this is clear in the prophets. And it's not just a prophetic idea. We've already covered how was Abraham justified? By faith. Genesis 15, 6. And it's not just there. Go back to the law. Well, not really go back to the law. Go forward in the law. I'm kind of getting my directions mixed up. What was Moses' parting word to Israel called? We call it Deuteronomy. Israel. Chapter 10. What does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding to you for your good, which I am commanding you today for your good, if I could read. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that it is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is to this day. Therefore, circumcise your, I know what you're thinking, it's not flesh, heart, and stiffen your neck no longer. In other words, don't be stubborn. Change your heart. Soften your spirit. Walk with him. How do I do that? Humbly, repentantly, trusting in him. This is the consistent message of Scripture on how we walk. It is not by letter, it is by faith. This is why Paul and Peter and James rightly understood it and why the Judaizers got it wrong and why I make mention that their problem is they were leaning on their tradition rather than the right understanding of Scripture. This is why Nicodemus was told in John 3 that you must be born again. That born again is a repudiation of your old life. That's why we started out. If you're not new, you're not born again. If you are comfortable and happy walking in your old way, then I worry of the presence of the Spirit in your life. It makes me tremble for what you may be. The goal is to forsake what I thought was good and to cling to what I now know is good in Christ. There's a difference. Now, how do I make sure I get that right? By doing the second thing that the Pharisees of the Judaizers got wrong. I understand the analogy of Scripture. I read the Bible from the beginning to the end and read what is now here in light of what God has already said because it fits together. This is what they misunderstood. This is what both the unhitched the Old Testament crowd and the modern day radical Hebrew roots side gets wrong, is they both do this in the wrong manner. Why were the Pharisees condemned? I mean, think about this. Jesus condemned them, right? His apostles are not following the tradition of the elders, which, which was an actual book, not following the written law. And they said, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat their bread with impure hands, not ritually washed. And he said, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, in other words, commandments from God, the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. 
This is what Jesus was attacking them on. Read your Bible rightly. This is why you get to the end of Matthew 23. He unloads on them. They're hypocrites. They travel to make a proselyte and they make him a son of hell. They're blind guides. They miss, they tithe mint and dill and cumin, but they neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They clean the outside, but inside they're whitewashed tombs. they full of robbery and self-indulgence. Oh my goodness, try to say that one right, like, dude, come on now. I mean, they're, they're beautiful on the outside, full of dead men's bones. They've killed the prophets. They reject the word of God. This is, this is the condemnation Jesus unloads on them. He is not pulling any punches, and he shouldn't have. This is important. You see the same thing in John 9. Um, the, the man uh, born blind is healed, and at the end of that chapter, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. In other words, because you see, because you claim to see, you're lost in your sin. If you were blind, I could heal you. If you were dirty, I could cleanse you. If you were full of iniquity, I could make you whole. I could give you righteousness. But because you say you're not any of those things, I can't do anything for you. This is your uh, hallmark of Luke in chapter 19. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. The physician is there for who? The sick or the well? Obviously those who are sick. This is the point Jesus is making. Why does he do that? Because if you do not understand this, you will be doomed. You will read your Bible wrong. Instead, the analogy of Scripture, where Scripture interprets Scripture, we're building with a progressive revelation here. Go back to the garden. What's the promise? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. There's going to be a seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent, who's going to crush that evil and that sin. What else is the mercy from God on display there? Do you ever notice what Adam and Eve covered themselves with when they realized they were naked? They covered up with uh, leaves, right? Um, problem with that. It's not a very good covering. It also doesn't actually mask their skin. That's why before they're sent out, Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. God killed an animal as a symbol of the covering of their nakedness. What does their nakedness symbolize? Their sin. So God killed an animal to cover their sin. The sacrificial system in place. Why? Pointing to what? Christ, the final revelation, the high priest, the sacrifice for sin who will cover for all of God's people. That's what's going on throughout Scripture. To understand the law as a means by which we are righteous is ridiculous. It's an understanding of how we are unrighteous and that our righteousness needs to be granted to us by Christ. That's what the law should have done. It should have made them long even more for the final fulfillment of all of these promises. It should have made them long for God to give them a spirit by which they could actually keep these laws, by which they could actually honor God and love neighbor and do these things. 
Because they couldn't the way they were. We can't when we're lost in our sin. In our sin. That's why the law breeds death, Romans 7, Galatians uh, 5. But rather, the Spirit gives life. The Spirit produces works of righteousness and good things in our life. That's completely throughout the New Testament. And that's the correction to this. Because when is all of that finally put together? See, that's the end, right? What does Jesus say at the end of Revelation? Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter the gates by the city. Did you catch that? Those who wash their robes. That's allusion from earlier in the book. How were their robes washed? They were washed and made white where? In the blood of the Lamb. You don't wash things in blood to get them clean. You wash them to get them clean of blood. No, not in Christ. In Christ we are washed in the blood. I think we wrote a song about that at some point. Well, I mean, not we, but we as in the church. This is good. This is right. This is the proper understanding of the gospel. And then the law flows from that because it drives you to Christ. And then in Christ you see the beauty of his spirit, the beauty of his mercy and his grace. And by the empowering of his spirit, you are sent out to fulfill all those good works, Ephesians 2.10, that God has laid out for you. To walk in newness of life, to walk in righteousness, to put the, coven the covenants, the testaments together, to put the testimonies of Christ together and walk as new people in his kingdom. So, what have we learned today, children? God has not changed his kingdom. It's been the same thing from the very beginning. And we cannot separate Christianity from the Old Testament. If we try to, we will fail. And if we try to oversimplify the Old Testament, we will fail as well. We must keep the Bible's progressive revelation in mind. See, there's the second ditch. If we don't keep progressive revelation in mind, we segment the word. Don't do that. Remember, 1,600 years, 40 plus writers, 66 books, one message. Uno. Uno messageo. And I know that's not the Spanish word for message, and I don't care. One message. Now, if you are tired of hunting us down on Podbean because you don't listen to anything else on Podbean, I have good news. While we will still use Podbean to host because I'm not trying to change any of that, we are now available. We've been available on Apple Podcasts, but we're apparently, from what I'm told by the website now, uh, we're available on Google Podcasts, which I know because that's how actually I'm accessing it now and following it along. We're available on Pandora and Spotify. We've been on Apple Podcasts because we've been on iTunes. The player will still be on the website, which is practicaltheologyministries.com, where... Ooh, doo, 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 Volume 1, Issue 6 of Calvary's Cavalry is available. I actually mailed it out this morning. Yes, I know it was supposed to go out in June, and I know it's like three days from August, and no, I don't care. Um, life is kind of settling back in for folks. We've made some adjustments on some things, so hopefully by the end of August, I will actually get July and August out and get us back on track to get you 12 issues this year. And then by the time 2021 rolls around, maybe the world will be more back to normal and we'll do some useful things in regard to that as well. I don't know. I'm making you no promises, but you can see all of that stuff there. If you do not get it delivered to your inbox, you can sign up on the website. And if you don't want to sign up on the website, then go to the page and read it yourself and enjoy it. Share it with your friends and neighbors. Have fun with the word find. Look at the catechism. Do all that, all that fun, goofy stuff and enjoy. Questions, info at practicaltheologyministries.com. Uh, 
I think that's everything. Um, hopefully life will return somewhat to normal, and Lou and I will be back together this week to uh, continue our march through theology. And if not, then you will see me again. You can check out the website. And until we do all that, read your Bible. It'll do you good.